All right, so grab your Bible and turn to what book? Hebrews. Very good. Not Ephesians. I'm sorry. Some, someone kind of forgot what we were studying. But uh, anyway, everyone else, turn to Hebrews 13. We, I've enjoyed Hebrews. This has been a fun study. We're at the end. It's over, essentially. The theology of the book, in a formal sense, finished in chapter 12. So there's, technically speaking, and I have to word this carefully, there's not any theology in chapter 13. It's not formally true because the whole chapter is based on theology. But technically speaking, chapter 13 is all application. This is kind of the end of the sermon. You've learned this truth, so you need to go do these things. And rather than being precise, so if we were going to write a, you know, an application using you know, maybe modern preaching tactics and strategies, just the, the methodology involved, we would answer the question a little differently, I think, than the author of Hebrews has. He's going a little different direction altogether. So if you remember the context, is he's writing this to um, Jewish believers who are being persecuted by their non-believing Jewish families to leave the gospel to go back to Moses. Then we would end this message, well, well since we have this great high priest, since we have this um, um, greater than Moses' son, heir who has provided an eternal redemption, an eternal inheritance, an eternal covenant, and he uses that word eternal or better all over the place. We have a better or more eternal or better or more real as opposed to a shadow. We have this real wonderful high priest. Because we have all of that, man, don't pay attention to the persecution. But that's not really how he is. Instead of going to that sort of pinpoint focused application, he says, so because we have all of that, um, you need to be a good Christian. And here's your list. There's all these things good Christians do. And because of Jesus did all of this stuff, you need to be a good Christian. So there's definitely no idea whatsoever in chapter 13, as this is our list of how to become a Christian. This is not works-based salvation. In fact, technically, and you, you should know this by now, but when the author of Hebrews is writing Hebrews, um, where do you think he put chapter 13's beginning? He didn't put chapters. Trick question. Sorry. I totally, I totally, totally set you up for that. He didn't put chapters or verses. He just wrote what he was saying. So it was, he started and he finished. We added these chapters for the sake of being able to get to the same spot at the same time and read the scripture together. So really what I'm going to tell you is that the idea of chapter 13, that this conclusion actually started in the last verse or the last two verses of chapter 12. So let's reread this and you'll see this if you're thinking about it. So remember, we had all of this theology for weeks and weeks and weeks and then we got to this conclusion. My phone is talking to Right? Verse 18, sorry, 28 of 12 says, therefore, and that therefore is the beginning of the conclusion. Now, we included it last week because it wraps up the kingdom that cannot be shaken. The idea that we're part of something that persists into the resurrection, that we're not going to be in the kingdom that falls away. We're in the kingdom that stays 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. You see how the flow goes? That's really, let brotherly love continue is the third exhortation after the therefore. Now there is a sense in which there's a progressive nature to this. The first therefore is the most meaningful in that basically everything we do is us being grateful for the salvation that we have already received. Not for a salvation we're trying to earn, not for one we're trying to produce, but God already did this work. So let us be grateful. And let us let us sacrifice. Let's do true worship. And so those two are very vague, very general. Now let's just go through a rapid fire. Here's some specific things. So let's read this um, top paragraph. And the first word is because. Because we have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, the perfect and eternal high priest, received eternal redemption, and then welcomed into the kingdom of God, we should live lives of obedience that reveal the majesty of the glory to come. That's a very significant wording. So the idea is we live in this gap between the promises and the realities. Well, I guess we should reverse it. So we're over here. We've been promised what will be here. And specifically, we're talking resurrection. We're talking the inheritance. We're talking new heaven, new earth, new heaven, on new earth, new Jerusalem, fixed, creation redeemed, restored. We know that's coming. That's what we've been promised. So we can manage the gap. Now, unfortunately, what's usually one of the main descriptors of that gap? Suffering. It's race. Well, for, for me, the two words you just said were synonymous. So one said race, one said suffering. See, you know, same thing. All right, but the idea is that you need endurance to get across. This is not an easy walk. It's not an easy path. You know, we say, well, Jesus said my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, because he's carrying it, but the fact of the matter is there is a yoke and there is a burden and you're still having to walk with it, but you got to walk in a way where Jesus is carrying the weight, but you're still carrying a cross. It's a burden in a sense, no matter how you look at it, that period is often difficult and we have to obey, but it's that forward thinking idea. So let's take that idea. And then let's just go through these several things that he lists that we need to do. So really this section goes from here. We're starting in verse 1. That'll end in verse 19, and then we'll have kind of a formal conclusion. So it says, number one, let brotherly love continue. So interesting how he words that. Let brotherly love continue. What does that wording assume? Already Already doing that. So who's he writing to? But not just Christians in general, and not even just Jewish Christians in general, to a church. It's a gathering of believers who, by definition, if they're obeying Jesus at all, Jesus said the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Exactly. So this is the basis of the Christian fellowship that they already experienced. This is early church. It's very early in that realm. And so this is their definition. So step one We'll keep doing that basic thing. So brotherly love isn't just 
uh, fun thing to say that he pulled out of the air. This is kind of close to the bedrock level. Well, be grateful for the kingdom that has been given to you. Let us offer up acceptable worship. Guys, and let brotherly love continue. It's not just some random third thing. It's almost, this is foundation level basics. Let brotherly love continue. He didn't write the book to expound brotherly love. He is assuming it, but he's assuming it at a bedrock level. Let brotherly love continue. And then the way he applies this is fascinating. So verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So what's the difference between strangers and brothers in this passage then? Really? So we're talking brothers is the church. Then the strangers would be, hypothetically, anybody. Actually. This could be anybody, but the idea. And, you know, we, we have this expression, and it usually has negative connotations and used by people I usually disagree with. But the word is, is Greek, and so it's still a good word, even if dumb people use it. But uh, xenophobic. You ever heard that expression? All right, what is, do you know what that means? Homophobic. What does that word mean? <laughs> we're homosexuals. All right, xeno, xeno is just the Greek word for different, strange, odd, not like you, foreigner, stranger. I mean, what's the chief, the chief, chief difference between you and someone who's from another country? <laughs> the chief difference is your culture. In other words, we're saying the chief difference is everything. You know, it, it's an entirely different worldview when you meet someone from another culture. Everything's different. They're strange to you. And that's who's technically being mentioned here. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So obviously, they're already showing hospitality to one another. That was the basic assumption. But here, we're showing hospitality to who? Everyone else. To the, to the unbeliever, to the and their culture, this would be the immigrant coming through town, the travelers, the nomadic type people, the people wandering. I mean, the Hebrew word, Hebrew, meant wanderer. That's what the early people were. And God always made them treat wanderers with respect out of a respect for their own heritage. And so we see that playing over a little bit here. But then he makes this comment that I wish we had more information about. And as much as we want to know more and explain more, we've got this phrase and one Old Testament story. And that's as good as we can do. But here's the phrase. For thereby, that is by entertaining strangers, um, some have entertained angels unawares. Yes, I mean, just the basic reading of that passage, what are we assuming here? What's he telling us has happened? So, so this more. this person that you had over for dinner was a stranger. He welcomed him in your house, took care of him, sent him on their way. He's saying it was an angel. And when you think, well, what? Why? How does God do that? What's the purpose of? I have no idea. But it's in there. It happens. And there is at least one specific Old Testament scenario. Where something like this, it's not exactly the same, something like this, it did happen. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament in Genesis? 
right? Sodom. Okay, well, you That's have two. It's all really kind of one story. It's all two different pieces of that puzzle. But the men who come to Abraham and then ultimately the men who go down to Sodom. You remember that story, right? Angels, right? Somehow the Abraham kind of knew what was going on, and maybe Lot did, just based on the way it's worded. Everybody else didn't. So, you know, it's not exactly the same scenario, but there you go. It's in there. So it could totally happen because it's, it's in there. That's as far as I go. I feel like I want to explain and work out all the details on this. There just aren't any. <laughs> so I have to leave it where it's at. So the rational part of me is like, well, it's, it's only in there once. Maybe it only happened once. No, but it says it. It's assuming it happened. And so, yeah, by default, an angel is a messenger. That's what the word angel means. The only thing I would say here is I love the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Clarence. But don't use that movie to explain this text. Okay? I love that movie. I cry when I watch that movie. Theology in that movie? Subpar. (laughs) <laughs> because Clarence, the key reason is because what was Clarence? He's an angel now. He used to be a person. Bingo. False theology. All right, that's not how that works. Still a touching movie. Though. I mean, I get it. All right. Anyway, I would love to spend more time there, but just, we just don't know anything. All right. So also remember those who are in prison. Um, similar, the same categories: entertaining strangers. And in this case, this may literally be friends and family who have been persecuted. Um, so remember those who are in prison, um, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also um, in the body. So in their prison system, actually, a lot of prisoners in their culture were for debt. That's the primary reason for incarceration in, that, in the Roman Empire. And they did not provide for your food. Uh, it was the exact opposite of our incarceration system. Um, you, you were on your own, which wasn't a good setup because if you're in prison and you're on your own, how do you get food? People bring it to you. And so that was one of the early ministries of the church. It's really a food relief program. <laughs> Essentially, the early church was taking a big part in this. Is the system is bad and they were helping make the difference. Um, some of these people would have been believers. Not all of them would have been. But they're, they're trying to meet the need in that scenario. So all of this comes together. This is hospitality. Hospitality affirms our brotherhood in Christ. So that passage from Jesus, by this world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That starts their love for one another and then it overflows to everyone else. It's not designed to be exclusively inward. It's just designed to be initially inward. And those are radically different. All right. Let's keep going. Verse 4. And I love this one. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. My basic idea of that passage is what? Faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness in marriage. So well, let's fill in the blank, and then I'll give you a little thing. There. Marriage presents the gospel of Christ. Um, the biblical word for sexual immorality is best defined by this scripture compared to any other scripture in the New Testament. So I don't know if your translation said, whose translation said sexually immoral in the last part of the verse? 
Anybody have Whoremonger? Oh, yeah. Was that a new Caden James or an old? Oh, yeah. All right. Whoremonger. Anybody got Fornicator? That's my favorite one. Okay. <laughs> That's the Greek is fornicate. It's just taken from Greek into English. This is the Bible's catch-all term for sexual immorality. If it's sin and has anything to do with sex, it's that word. Does that make sense? Whereas when we say adultery, we're usually a little more precise. right? We wouldn't necessarily call homosexuality adultery. But homosexuality is fornication or whoremongering or um, sexually immoral. You follow what I'm saying? So here's the definition. It is not sexually immoral if it happens inside of this circle. If it's not inside of that circle, it is sexually immoral. That's just the way they use this term. But you see that in the verse. Let marriage be held in honor. It's got a specific, dedicated, design spot that's Christian. So this is the Christian sexual ethic summarized in one verse. There's plenty of other verses, but this verse kind of summarizes everything. That's the basic teaching. And it's interesting that that makes the list. So we've been given this kingdom, so let's be hospitable to one another, and let's do this well. That's number two in the list. But let's keep going. That one's a fun topic, but we'll, we'll save the nitty-gritty of that for another day. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can be so sorry. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The main idea there is contentment. Contentment magnifies the worth of Christ. So really, so far, all three of these main ideas, hospitality, marriage, and contentment, how well would you say American culture, American Christianity even, is doing in each of these three categories? Yes. <laughs> so really, the message of Hebrews is just as applicable today as it has ever been. Basic Christian worldview stuff. Love one another. Marriage be held in honor. Be content. The opposite of the American dream. Be content. Don't have love for money. Now, again, we spent a whole topic on there. The problem isn't the money, right? What's the problem? Love of it. The problem is when you love it, when you're around it, it's hard for money to ever be good because you're always loving it. So lots of interesting things to work out there. We just didn't get done. He's just rapid fire, and so we're going to rapid fire as well. Verse 7. Remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So he throws in the food thing there because what was the main difference between the Jews who were following Christ and the Jews who were following Moses? Bacon. That's a big deal for them. What can we eat? And so by abstinence, he would say that they're damning themselves. They're making an idol of the, the, the 
cultural idea of the law and not grace. So it'd be better to be strengthened by grace than by food. You see how he's using that in that context? So it doesn't apply to us in exactly the same way because that's not our dilemma. But I want to focus for a few minutes, and this one's a big enough deal to, to spend some time on. Verse 8. Let me read that one more time. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, or sorry, yesterday, today, and forever. What's the basic idea of that? He's unchanging. He's, he's the same at all points. Now, we talked about that a little bit at the very beginning of Hebrews, that Jesus has always been God. And when we say Jesus received a new name or a new glory, how does that drive with this verse? Do you remember how we explained that? Jesus was made lower than the angels, and then he was higher than the angels. But if he doesn't change... How can any of those statements be true? Humanity, right? So Jesus, I'm still going to use a circle, just not the same one. So the quick Trinity lessons is how many gods are there? One. One. But how many persons are there? Three. Three. Jesus is kind of the opposite. Um, Jesus is how many persons? One. And how many natures? So he is God, and he is man. It's like reverse trinity. Make sense? One person, as opposed to three persons, one God, we have one person, two things. Which part of him is never changing? This part. Because Jesus changed all the time. He could be asleep or be awake. He could be hungry. He could be satisfied. All right, so... Plenty of change in that sense, but that's not true of his person. Jesus himself doesn't change. Now, how's he applying this in the passage? What's the next verse talking about? Why does he tell us that Jesus is the same every day? So that we don't get led astray by what? False teaching. teaching. So in other words, he's defining false teaching how? Anything new? Why? Why, why, can, why does that work? Do I? Is that not working for you? <laughs> I'm good with questions. Well, I'm just gonna... wondering why it's working for them because the, the idea of Jesus was a relatively new idea. Okay. So, oh, that's good. So they're dealing with the issue of Revelation, and we would say that Revelation is now complete. Whereas in the Old Testament, we would have said, we are waiting for something new. The main difference, though, is the Old Testament said we were waiting for this new thing. And the New Testament says, we got the new thing and there can't be anything else. It's just, so it's just a matter of where we are in the story. So the adding anything else is what the new thing is. Yeah, now. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. That works. So they basically just put a cut off. Well, there is a cutoff, but there's a theological reason for the cutoff. How did we get the Old Testament? Prophets of different kinds. They're all just prophets. It's inspired by the Lord. It's it's from the Spirit. But how did we get the New Testament? Well, through God in the form of the man, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect revelation of God. Revelation climaxed. It reached its pinnacle. 
You cannot do better than Jesus. So now we finally have the full, correct, total package. And from this point forward, we can have nothing new. Do you follow what I'm saying? So Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The formal doctrine, for those of you who care, is that God is immutable. Immutable. He does not change. Now, this is significant. Immutability is basically every doctrine of God in some fashion. So have you ever heard that God is omnipresent? He's really immutable with regard to location. Can God move from one place to another? So, in other words, God can't move. It is not possible for God to move. To say God is omniscient, do you know that one? What's omniscient mean? Can God learn? So, even in knowledge, he's immutable. He cannot experience new information. He can't change. He can't learn something new. All right, what about with glory? Can God get more glorious? No, it's completely immutable. He cannot change. What about time? Can God progress through time? No, he's immutable. Infinity means he's, he's in one spot forever. Time would be beneath or within him. He's bigger than all of these. So there's a sense in which immutability defines all the other attributes of God in some way. Does that make sense? When I learned that, that blew my mind, so I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Which is why hell lasts forever. Because it'll never exhaust the wrath of God. Because there's always more. That's why heaven can last forever, because we'll never exhaust the grace of God. We'll never exhaust the joy, the delight, the light of God. I'm fascinated by that one. We don't have to spend two hours there, but I just think that one's really cool. So he's the same all the time. So in other words... Hold fast to the unchanging word of Christ. You can always tell a false religion by two markers. One, they change the doctrine of Christ. Two, they add to the scriptures. Every time. You can't pick a single false religion that doesn't do those two things. That happens. So if you know this book, you don't have to worry about all the new stuff because you know the right stuff. So that's the most important way to avoid um, apostasy. Use the word. Oh, the... Unchanging. You can say immutable word of Christ too if you want to. If you want a fancy term. Okay, next. Let's see. Can we get through verse nine? Yeah, verse ten. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Alright, if you remember what we were talking about in Hebrews, that made sense. So let's just make sure we remember what we've said so far so that that makes sense. What's the tent a reference to? The tabernacle. And in this case, the literal one, as opposed to which one? The heavenly one. So this is the shadow. The, The one on earth is the shadow. And those who serve the tent is who in the Old Testament? Priest. Technically, the Levites 
But he is, he's just referring to the priesthood in general at this point. He says, and what was the deal? So the stuff that got brought to the tabernacle, who could eat the meat that was set aside for the Levites and the priests? The Levites and the priests. Not you, right? That, it, was, it was dedicated. It was holy. So you weren't qualified to eat this. But now he's saying, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What's he saying? So we're working with an altar, and what can the high priest from the Old Testament do at our altar? Nothing. Whose altar is it? It's Jesus. And who's the high priest of this altar? Jesus. Whose blood is on that altar? Whose, whose body has been sacrificed on this altar? It's Jesus. And they do not qualify to touch this altar. Do you? So he dissolved the priesthood. He dissolved the priesthood. Yes. But anybody with the blood of Christ sprinkled on them now has complete access. Because where's the veil? It's torn. No longer valid. We get to go in. That's a setup for this interesting illustration. 4, verse 11. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Just to visually make this clear. I keep losing my... Give you a visual. So here's your. Well, I drew a temple, but they said tabernacle. Do with me. So they sacrificed an animal over here, and then they would take the blood from the animal. Priest would. He'd come over here and he'd sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant inside. They didn't take the animal into the Holy of Holies. The animal stayed out here. And if all you need is the blood in here, what's left out here? <laughs> the whole thing, right? It's, it's all left. Now, in some sacrifices, they would eat this. But in the particular, this one that he's referencing, they did not. This was a whole burnt offering. If you read that expression in the Old Testament, whole burnt offering, it means God ate the whole thing. And in what form does God eat it? Fire. Exactly. So they would take this piece... And they would haul it outside the camp. So here's the camp. And they would go burn it. That's not a good fire, but you're with me. They'd go burn it outside the camp. Well, think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Where does he get slaughtered? Outside the camp. But then where's the veil get torn? Inside. And he's not even literally at that tabernacle. Where's this happening? And the, well, I mean, the, the true one, the, the heavenly one. But he's using the illustration. So, for the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, they're burned outside the camp. So, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, why say all of that? Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So if this is the camp, this is where the protection is, this is where the people are, this is where the food is, this is 
the city. This is the happening place. Where does he tell us to go? Let's go out there. Let's go bear the reproach that Jesus bore. Well, this is really the exact same message from 2 Corinthians. You remember that on, on Sundays? Right? The model for Christianity, you have, you have the idea of the crucifixion and then the resurrection. Which one should be primary example of our lives? Right now, the crucifixion. In the end, it will be the resurrection. But right now, we need to go outside the camp and endure the reproach just like Jesus did. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city. So instead of city, instead of camp, it's city. And he's saying, this city, not yours. That's not your city. So for us, Jerusalem's not what we're tempted to make our city. We're not Hebrews. Well, what's the city in our world? Our church. Um, not quite. I mean, it could be. If it is, we got to fix something. But are we ever embarrassed of Christianity? Just be honest with yourself. You know, toward whom? Do we have some notion of some public group? Some, you know, we get scared to say the gospel, say we believe some of these things because there might be some shame or embarrassment but but who is that that who is it making us feel that way it's we might call it the world from a you know gentile perspective they would have said rome that was their their lingo for evil was rome or babylon but for us this is just that idea of them we, we say that all the time with they might throw out the liberals but it's not usually the liberals you're trying to you know avoid offending it's it's the people closer to home who are a little bit more like you. And uh, we don't want to bear the reproach and shame of the gospel if we do all of these things. If you do everything in this list, are some people going to think you're weird? Well, what's the application then? They think you're weird. You're weird. What do you do? You just be weird. Go outside the camp. Bear the reproach because this is not our city. Where's our city? It's in Jerusalem, in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, and it's coming here. So, let's enjoy that city. We seek the city that is to come. I feel like what we missed something. I would just say the world. What? What? But it's really whatever it is for you, your community, your your ideology, your subculture. Something that you might be embarrassed to obey Christ in front of. To go further than your embarrassment or further than whatever's yeah. blocking you from. Yes. You should endure, just endure, endure the shame. Go outside that camp. Acknowledge, hey, I, I want to love you guys, but I'm not one of you. And I have to leave the camp. And I have to endure the shame. So that we do embrace the suffering. That's the next one. Embrace the suffering of Christ to demonstrate our hope in Christ. All right, let's just real quickly, this is, let's let's wrap it up. I know we're one minute after, but I can get through this quick. You're fine, take your time. 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good 
and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. So number one, acknowledge the blessings of Christ. Even in the suffering, because what was their context? They're being persecuted. But what should their lips be doing? Acknowledging, literally the wording is acknowledging his name, seeing his hand, and everything that's happening. Stamping Jesus on it. Hey, the Lord, the Lord is doing something here. Giving Christ credit where credit is due. But keep going, verse 17. This is the one I was trying to get to. We've got to get here, or it's all meaningless. Obey your leaders. <laughs> Who wants to refill my coffee? No. <laughs> it's not it. That's not what it's talking about. All right, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then Paul, talking about himself in the same capacity, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a... I said Paul. I don't know who wrote Hebrews, but uh, I, said it, I said that anyway. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So last one under that section, appreciate the servants of Christ for the sake of your soul. In other words, take advantage of it. We've got eight elders at this church. Take advantage of it. Let them... Let them be able to serve you for your growth and your edification and pursue them for that. Take advantage of it. All right, last part, verse 20. Beautiful benediction here. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, main idea, most important, the God who raised Jesus equips us to do his will. Let that sink in. The God who told Jesus to come out of the tomb, broke the power of death, Destroyed the power of sin. He's the one that equips you to do the good work. Who who do we usually rely on for equipping? We're doing it wrong. We have to lean back on our own strength. Lean back on our family. Lean back on our our friends, our pastor, our church. Well, I mean, God is going to use each of us in different ways to help with this process. But in the end bare basics of all of this is who does the equipping? God does. He does. And just see how he described that Jesus. Because Jesus is the great shepherd who purchased our redemption by his blood. He will certainly be faithful to complete his work unto the glory of God. Which of course is the main point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is capable. He can save you. And by saved, we don't just mean get you saved. We mean keep you saved and get you to the other end. This is how he ends. Two more verses, three more verses. Actually, it's small, but there's four verses. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released 
with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all the leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. And that's just the final conclusion to the matter. And unfortunately, it didn't say by so-and-so or sincerely so-and-so. This would have been an excellent point to have, except we do know that whoever wrote it knew who? Timothy. So that's why Paul's always been a good candidate, because who was Paul's number one disciple? Timothy. So that's one of the arguments for that. All right, so we're, we're late. Any questions on that? Embrace. Well, what's the next one? Acknowledge. <laughs> Contentment. All right. Well, let's pray. And yeah, we got to figure out what we're doing next. So I'm open to ideas as long as it's not eschatology or Calvinism. <laughs> Only two things not on the table. Absolutely. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace, your gospel. We thank you for the book of Hebrews, the way it stirred our affections for you and stirred our hope in Christ and just the sincerity and the certainty even that it can give us, uh, knowing that we have received an eternal inheritance, an eternal redemption, a saving from the uttermost. God, I pray that you would use all of this to stir our hearts to be grateful and to be obedient to the lifestyle we as Christians are supposed to have. We pray that you go with our church, do with Ashley's Bible study. We pray that it be fruitful. Use it to bring edification and for your glory that the gospel be shared through this study. I pray that you'd help us all to do well this October as we um, gather together to study the word, to read the word, to saturate ourselves with the truth of scripture. I pray that you would bless this endeavor. We know that the word does not return void, and so we expect to see your word bring transformation. So we humble ourselves before you, knowing that you will do a work in us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.